As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman. No Stu Mandel today. Stu is actually taking this week off, getting a little personal time. So uh, we have a really, really good co-host for the show today, Mike Loxley, the head coach at Maryland. We're going to dig into some interesting stuff with him, things that I think are really important, bigger than football, quite honestly. Um, I did a story a few weeks back on... Uh, mental health awareness and why it's such a issue that that is so important to him and his family. We'll also talk about his team. Maryland is in year three of the Mike Loxley era. Uh, he has had a kind of a reboot on his coaching staff, and he has a very talented offense, especially from the skill stamp skill position standpoint. A loaded group of receivers, as well as a big-name quarterback in Talia Tagovailoa, who Loxley coached his older brother, Tua, at Alabama just a few years ago. We also will get into the coalition that he formed to really help uh, get some momentum behind the issue of minority football coaches getting opportunities to be head coaches, both in college and pro football. It is an issue that he is, another issue that he is really out on the forefront and taking a lead on. Uh, and with all that said, let's get to the interview. Okay, and now we are pleased to be joined by our guest, uh, Maryland head coach Mike Loxley. Coach, thanks for joining us today on The Audible. Appreciate it. So if our listeners haven't seen the story that I had written the other day about uh, Coach Loxley and his family, and it's a really important one. The more I kind of got into it, and even after the fact of some of the people I heard from, um, it really touches on just how critical an issue mental health is. And and Mike has a very personal connection to it. Uh, his son Miko uh, died at 25. What is it? It was a little over three years ago, right? Um, and for the people who haven't read the story, like the experience you have now 
from being able to look back, but also to be in the middle of it. What was, how did it form your understanding of, of, of mental health and men, why mental health awareness is so critical at this point? Yeah, I mean, again, the, the way it happened for us is, is almost as if it came out of nowhere. And it's amazing when you, you know, get involved with organizations and, and Kia and I got involved with NAMI um, and to hear the stories and how similar they are, that it just kind of kicks in. Sometimes there's some type of stressors that uh, maybe ignite it, but other times it's just genetically, it happens right in that age group that I tend to work with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so coming out of nowhere for us as a family and not having any experience whatsoever and in, in dealing with it, um, it, it was tough because as we did research and we started becoming more educated on mental health, we found a lot of roadblocks. There's not a lot of uh, resources out there. That, you know, there's been more health care taken away from mental health, uh, mental health issues. Uh, and, and now a lot of it's pretty much a la carte, meaning pay as you go. And it's an expensive uh, journey that fortunately, because of the type of job I have, I'm able to, to, to manage it. But just to think about all the people that are afflicted with mental health issues and mental illnesses, and that sometimes there's not a lot of places for them to go. And it's amazing how many of them end up homeless or, or in prison because there aren't a lot of the resources on the local level, the federal level for, for people to turn to. And so uh, it rocked our world. Um, it reshaped us as a family. You know, obviously, you know, Miko's death, which we don't correlate to necessarily having the, anything to do with his mental illness. But because of what we went through for the three years prior to his death, four years prior to his death, and dealing with him through his mental health struggles, uh, it just made me think back, man, to what I deal with as a coach on a day-to-day -day basis. And it was almost like an aha moment as I continued to educate myself and our family continued to educate. That there's been so many players probably that have come through my program that, you know, and I look back and some of the, whether it's the, the, the look, whether it's some of the conversations we've had that maybe I ignored some of the signs and did not know, but I, I'm on full alert now and, and have tried to take a proactive approach in my second opportunity to be a head coach to make sure that the complete development of the players that come through my program, which includes social development, uh, we talk about it and we provide and have a safe place or resources for them to turn to when they are dealing with issues. I want to circle back with that in a second, but I just for people who hadn't, the video that the University of Maryland did, and you are prominent in it, your wife Kia, prominent in it, and it's a very powerful, especially the first six or seven minutes, and just when I watched it, and I, you know, it's just your story I've, I've written about when you guys won the national title at Alabama three years ago, I guess. Um, I remember the, how emotional it was for the whole family just happened to be in the same spot of the field where I was. And I remember um, talking to your youngest son, I think your, your daughter, who's now a soccer player at Auburn, she was there as well. And, and uh, your wife, I, what I didn't know was, I didn't know your wife until I, uh, um, until I watched the piece had been a police officer. And so the thing that struck me about that story was you, you guys are talking about Miko your son and his childhood and for, in layman's terms 
it seemed like on the surface he had everything you could want, you know, in terms of, you know, he was a really good athlete. You said, you know, you guys, he was, you know, did piano recitals. He was seemed to be very well-rounded, did well in school, good sense of humor, always, you know, seemed pretty happy. Um, was a good enough athlete there to end up getting a scholarship. I think it was to Youngstown State. And then you had said in the piece that, I don't know if he's 21, 20 year, 22 years old, all of a sudden there was a call that you guys had when he was away at school and it alarmed you enough that you guys went up there. And when I heard that, I kept on thinking there has to be something that like, in my head, not knowing, not being a mental health expert by any stretch, but you, you know, just in my logic, I'm like, well, what could have triggered this this person who seemed to have everything going and all of a sudden to get them into such a dark place? I mean, did you approach it that way or did you sit there and, and, and kind of just just were at a loss where where did, were there signs we were missing or that kind of so how does that work for parents? Yeah, I mean, for, for, for me, the first thing that came to mind was like, are you is he on drugs? Because it's just the type of conversation we had that triggered us to go up. It didn't make sense because for a, a guy of Miko's intelligence to say, hey, I hear somebody down in the basement and he lives in an apartment. So there really isn't a basement. It just alarmed me, alarmed Kia, you know, and he had made a couple of calls like that. So, you know, our first, my first thought was, is he on some form of drugs that maybe have triggered this type of conversation? And then, you know, as we described, when we went to his apartment, you know, to see the paranoia he was going through to the point where he covered up, all of the electric sockets in his house. And, you know, I can remember him t- mentioning to me that, you know, they got a bug in his tooth and he needs to get his tooth removed because they're following him. And those were the things where I'm just like, what? I mean, it's so bizarre from, again, a week before, two weeks prior, you know, he's playing football at practice to this type of conversation. And it just really, it scared me. And first, my first thoughts were maybe he's on some type of drugs or it's alcohol who knows? And then when we went up and we saw kind of where he, how he was living in his apartment, it, it made us know that there's something more to it. And, and, and then we began to take steps to try to get him help. What I thought, you know, for, for people who are familiar with your own story, or at least a little familiar with your own story, and there's definitely been an evolution as you as a coach, like, you know, there should be for all of us as we get, you know, now that you're into your fifties, But one thing that when we talked for the story and having a little bit of familiarity with some of the players that that either you've been in programs with or not necessarily recruited, but players you may know of. And from some of my own stories that I've heard um, kind of off the record conversations you've had with I've had with coaches where it's like you start to think back of, you know, like you said, your aha moment. Some of that rings true. But what I thought was interesting when we talked was. Your own personal experiences, how where you grew up, right. um, I think you had said two of your siblings right. had been in prison and had a lot of, it's a lot of hardship and it's a lot of heavy stuff you had to deal with um, in your upbringing and then for your own, I don't know, transition to college athletics as a college athlete and get into coaching. How do you think this has kind of, given you added perspective that maybe when you're in the middle of it you just you're just kind of you're just trying to get through it 
<laughs> yeah, it's kind of the story of, 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 of my life, the survival mode and, you know, coming out of a tough socioeconomic background that I grew up in, a single parent home, like you talked about, my two, two older brothers spending most of their adult life in prison, um, you know, from the late 80s here in D.C., which, you know, D.C. at the time was considered the murder capital and uh, the drugs of the, the, the war on drugs in the late 80s and 90s took its toll on my community. So uh, for me, again, it goes back to what the great game of football has done for me and what doors it's opened and provided me. And that's why my passion as a coach and, you know, I'm probably giving up a lot of my, my, my secret sauce, but, you know, everybody always says, well, why is Locke such a good recruiter? Well, I have a lot of experiences where I can relate and share the experience of how I've been able to overcome certain things uh, with players that kind of grow up or have grown up or have dealt with similar things. And that to me is why I think it's so important to continue to have more guys like myself become coaches, head coaches, so that we can play a, a part in, in maybe helping others that have come uh, through some of the similar things that we've had to deal with in our experiences in our life to maybe get to a, a place where they can be successful and then go back and pull one or two more out of those situations. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. From your experience as a coach um, and being around other coaches, I mean, uh, you know, every year in a quote-unquote normal year, you'd go to the AFCA convention. You have, you know, certainly a lot of relationships all over the country. How much do you think um, this is a stigma and this is a ignorance in its in its uh, purest, maybe like um, not ignorance, ignorance and just a not a lack of understanding. Um, is there in coaching when it's like, hey, we got this guy and you, you, they don't know what to do with him. They just see he's got troubles, got issues. He's not transitioning well. What would you say to your peers who are college coaches, whether they're head coaches or not, about what they need to be doing or probably should be doing to helping a lot of these kids who, when they get to them, they may know what they're what. It, they may not know what they're really getting. Yeah, I, I think, again, the advice I give is what I try to practice. And, you know, I've really become very proactive, especially after going through what we went through with Miko. Um, been very proactive with as we onboard and bring kids into our program. Uh, I've used the analogy that some guys come in to these college settings from their environments and it's, they come in with, you know, PTSD symptoms of just things that they've been through in their life. 
very similar to me. I never unpacked the baggage of what it was like, you know, pretty much, you know, mom working two jobs and, you know, coming home from school, managing myself and a younger sibling, my younger sister and my two older brothers spent, like I said, most of their, you know, adolescent adult lives in prison. I never unpacked some of the, 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 the scars or some of the things that I dealt with. And then as I went to college, you just learn to, I would say, not get over it, but just get through it. And, you know, as I found, luckily, through the game of football and through coaches that cared uh, enough about me to, to kind of dig deep and figure out kind of what makes me tick and how to help me. Um, I took a lot of those experiences and now I would strongly encourage them to, to, to try to do a great job of when you onboard these guys to get the mental health screening, um, spend the time and the money, the resources, especially you learn and know when you go into these homes what they're coming from in the recruiting process with recruiting being like a two year, three year process. And when you do your homework, like most of us do, you kind of know the guys that would need some special attention, may need some help with the transition from where they are to where you're bringing them. I would say spend the time, the resources, and, and get to know and help maybe unpack some of the baggage they're bringing in. And, and you'll probably get a, a more productive player, a more productive person uh, on your college campus and maybe deal with some of the issues that uh, on the front end, instead of always being reactive where now you want to know why a guy's smoking weed because he's got depression and it makes him feel good. And, or he's, you know, why guys out, you know, kind of uh, outwardly acting and, and being kind of, you know, aggressive. And you find out that he's dealt with abuse in his life and you, you know, be more proactive than reactive is the advice I would give because we all know where they're coming from. If you spend the time recruiting the way we do, to make sure that they have the resources available and the people around them to ensure, as we talk about making them the best version of themselves, it can't just be as a football player or as a student, but also as a person. How much do you think of this is an uphill battle in terms of, you know, kind of the, I don't know, the world where coaches tend to live in, where they associate vulnerability with weakness and it you know like I think some of them and I don't want to I don't know if it's fair to paint a broad brush but some of them I think come from such a quote old school mentality where they just may turn a deaf ear to it and don't want that somebody to show that side of vulnerability because they associate it with weakness yeah I just don't understand it and I don't know how you'll continue to recruit and have the type of success that that maybe you've been able to accomplish with that mentality because I mean, I just, even raising four kids myself and I think of, you know, raising Mike Jr. and Miko as opposed to my younger two, Kai and Corey, the the differences in how I've had to adjust my parenting skills. I mean, you know, the older two, you could say do it because I said so. And then the younger two, which are, you know, maybe eight years difference from the older two, you got to tell them why. <laughs> and it, it took me some adjustment. If I didn't have a, a, a wife like Kia, who is really in tune to the the nurturing of, of, of our children to say, listen, what worked for Mike doesn't necessarily work for Kai. Like you have to adjust your approach because each kid is an individual case. I think that's the same for coaching. And I think that's what makes 
great coaches, great and average coaches, average is their inability to adjust and change based on where you are. And, 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 you know, one of the best things I learned, you know, I was never forget being in Cancun on vacation and a, a old school teacher was in the pool and I was sitting there and she found out I coached and talked about our family. And I can remember her saying, love your child where he is, not where you want him to be. And so basically I took that meaning. If you got a C student, make sure you know you're as proud of him as a, as a father of him being a C student as you would if he was an A student. And that mean you don't want him to be an A student, but I thought there's something to be said about loving kids where they are. And I think that's the purpose uh, we need to have as coaches. We need to meet kids where they are and then try to provide them with resources, experiences, tools to get them to where they want to be. From, from you spent three years with Nick Saban in Alabama. Um, what maybe, like, I, I feel like a lot of people see his image as the guy who Lane Kiffin talked about the ass chewings, and you see kind of that from how you saw him reach uh, players. What stood out to you that might surprise some people in terms of maybe his understanding? Because it feels like, just from talking to people who've worked in that program, there's a lot of resources he's brought in on the mental side of things that he's maybe, I don't know if it's different ways to reach different people or what was it that, that kind of caught your eye the most? I think the big thing is his, uh, his avail, uh, ability uh, in player development wasn't just as football players. I mean, a lot of the mental health stuff that we're incorporating here are things that I saw firsthand when I got the opportunity to be behind the curtain there where you, you know, you're bringing in uh, freshmen and every player in our program are being psychologically evaluated to figure out the best way to coach them, the best way to teach them, the best way they learn. You know, to me, that's cutting edge because, again, every kid has an individual way or individual things that maybe motivate them. And, you know, to spend the resources and, and, and put the time into it, to get to know exactly each and every kid and what makes them tick and what allows them to be the best version of themselves. I mean, I saw it first firsthand how it worked and, you know, sitting in those meetings to understand, well, you know, if a kid learns by kinetically doing it, you know, you can't have your meetings all be in a classroom showing video and talking. Maybe you do more walkthroughs because this is how this guy learns. So, I mean, these are all things I think that, I mean, coach has been doing down there for maybe quite some time and, you know, not was, was not the case earlier in my career at some of the other places I've been and maybe not everybody has the resources, but I do think, you know, resources don't always mean money. It can be figuring out a way and I'm more of the along the lines of maybe we don't have resources like Alabama, but we definitely have time and people that would be willing to give their time to maybe offset what would be maybe costly at other places to get the information you need to figure out the best way to have each player in your program leave here a better version of themselves. I know one of the other things that has been a, a, a subject that's dear to your heart, um, and it's been something that I feel like I've talked to you about over the years, but really kind of crystallized this, this offseason uh, you formed and founded the National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches. And that is a subject that has come up. I feel like it's come up 
a decent amount in this winter with the NFL cycle. And it's not it's Eric Bieniemy's name is is one of those names that's come up a lot, but it's certainly not the only one. Um I remember being at in Atlanta, I guess it was 2 years ago. It was at uh the NFL's coaching summit and it was in Atlanta. And one of the things that stood out to me, it was it was a lot of NFL guys and it was a, it was a you know, handful of college guys there. And I remember Ozzie Newsome, legendary uh, former Alabama player, as well as as uh, executive in the NFL, had said something on a panel where he was kind of talked about how surprised he was of the numbers of the people who were just in that room. And I'm sitting there, and I think I was really I, the only college media person there. I think there was a handful of my buddies who were on the NFL side. But I remember thinking, like, this isn't even like, this is a this is just like, uh, yeah and i was like there's a lot of dudes i know who would like and i know a couple of them who were like can you find out a way to get me on that list to get in there and that stuck with me and i remember talking to jim trotter and steve white who've been really great on this issue on the nfl side in the media and saying there's a lot of guys out there that just it's almost like it was surprising to hear ozzy newsome say that right um from when you were in the room and you like, and I know from talking to other coaches at the AFCA, like they would have their own like informal like gatherings, but how, like, how do you get this issue off the ground really? Yeah. Much like you. And, and again, I've known Ozzy forever and has always been a great uh, ear for me to lean on uh, with being so close to him here in Baltimore, as well as the connection with Alabama was surprising um, and, and again, as you know, and I know, the NFL uh, silo is different than the college silo in that, you know, they, they very rarely have a chance to intermingle like that summit allowed. And, you know, like you said, and that's kind of the genesis of where it started, because a year prior to the NFL taking over the summit, you know, Pep Hamilton and myself, who is a great friend of mine, that's one of my closest friends in this business, who's another name that, you know, you don't hear, but here's a guy that coaches the quarterback position probably as well as anybody has had two rookie of the year guys and, and luck and, and Herbert. And, but yet you don't hear his name and, you know, his coordinated offenses where he took the Colts to the championship uh, game. We came together and said, look, you know, you see, and, and it started with, and this is, again, you, you look at, uh, Sean McVay and, and, and uh, you look at uh, my guy up in San Francisco, uh, the guy Kyle Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan, and, and our guy in Green Bay, and all those guys worked together. All right, and, and they were all assistants together. They all were great friends, and they kind of formed kind of this pack to where you know they helped each other, and they all benefited from the relationship that they had to where they're all successful NFL head coaches right now. And so I can remember saying to Pep, man, he and I have been doing this for years. I mean, we get together and it's five hours of all talking quarterback play protections, you know, and we said, how can we informally maybe broaden this group or this spectrum of guys to get together and have these type of conversations, create the dialogue, share information, you know, in an effort to maybe help help us do what they were able to do. Because, I mean, they were the, really the first group I saw kind of do it. They were all here in Washington together as young assistants. And, you know, they all kind of 
got opportunities and they took care of each other and brought each other with them and and, and built their resumes and, and are, are very well-deserving head coaches. But I said to Pep, what can we do to maybe create that same dynamic? And he and I came up with, we said, let's create a quarter black summit. And I can remember Pep having relationships with Jimmy Ray and with Shaq Harris in the NFL from his time there, calling them about the idea. And then Doug Williams got involved and we all met you know, up at Morehouse College for uh, kind of a, we all paid our way in. We all, and this was a year before the NFL summit. And I can remember, I, I want to say it was Rod Graves that sat in from the NFL side and saw it. You know, we had Jim Caldwell there, myself, Tony Elliott, you know, all types of guys from, you know, the HBCU circuit of coaches. And we all had a great day where we, talk football, we got up and shared information, ideas, and we all left there, I thought, probably better coaches. And uh, the NFL saw it and thought what a great idea it was as part of their initiatives to increase, you know, minority head coaches and, and coordinators and quarterback opportunities. And they took it over and, and did, have done a great job with it. But, to, you know, like you said, to hear Ozzy talk about not knowing, and it just showed that, you know, that, that inability for college and pros to – to know what's going on um, really stood out with that comment, but there are so many more, as you know, minority coaches that really sharp football coaches, very capable of being able to sit in the chair that I sit in today. Uh, if just given the opportunity, maybe a, a chance on the dance floor to get in front of the, the powers that be that make these decisions. And that's what the coalition was created to do was one to prepare you know, the next generation of coaches with the tools necessary. The second piece, which I think is probably the biggest and most important is the promote part. Because as I've said and coined this deal, like coaches aren't being hired now, they're being elected. I mean, it's almost like campaigns when you look at why guys are getting jobs and which guys are getting jobs. And it's the hot name. It's the name that the fan base hears, sees all the time. It's the name that mainstream media, people like yourself and, and others put out every time you turn on college game day. It's those names. And I think the coalition has to become an advocacy group that gets these names into the mouths of the powers that be that make it cool to tell the story or have a narrative as to why Pep Hamilton should be one of the hottest names in, in the NFL or why Eric Bieniemy should get this job. And so, and then the next piece is to produce those names to get them in front of the powers that be, the people that make these decisions. So they know, unlike what Ozzy knew, that there are plenty of prepared, uh, qualified people that have that opportunity to, that if given the opportunity, uh, we feel would shine in, in, in those roles based on the powerful people like Ozzy that are on this, uh, this coalition's board that we've vetted and, and have given the tools and prepared them to be able to not just go interview for the job, but to get the job and do a great job when they get it. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. 
Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Yeah, there was two things that really I remember kind of resonated with me. Was The first was the quarterback coach side of it where... And I'm just going to use these names because they're the ones top of my head. Like uh, Jim Chaney, who I like a lot. You know, he was like a, a small school nose tackle, right? Nobody looks at Jim and says, oh, yeah, I remember that guy was, you know, he doesn't look like a quarterback. He wasn't. But he's, you know, he uh, worked and learned the system and, and really rose up. And there are guys, some of those names you mentioned. I mean, Sean McVay was a receiver in college. Kyle Shanahan, obviously, a receiver in college who grew up. You know, grew up in the business with his dad. Um, but there's a lot of guys who were, you know, Dan Mullen, who's a really good offensive coach. I think he was a Division three tight end somewhere in Pennsylvania, right? And so, um, you know, it's not like so, everybody who's a quarterback coach was Andrew Luck, right? right? Or, you know, some of those, like, you know, it's it's interesting. Penn State has a, has a running back coach who was a really good quarterback in college, and he was one of the names that popped in my head when Ozzy, uh, Juwan Sider, this is who I'm talking about for listeners. But like when Ozzy said that, I'm like, here's a guy who actually was a good college quarterback. Um, and, ha- and in a lot of ways, to me, I would think would be pretty marketable because he was a, he's from South Florida, has a lot of recruiting ties there, has been around a lot of really good coaches. And you're like, okay, are these guys not on the radar? And then I thought of some other coaches I know who end up as receivers coaches, um, have worked around some really good, you know, they've developed some really good receivers, have worked around some really good head coaches. And when I've had the informal conversations about, you know, their futures with this, because they're not the play caller. And one of them made the point and said, you know what, if I got to be the offensive coordinator when I'm the head coach, I hired the wrong offensive coordinator. And this person's mentality or this person's perspective was um, the things that he saw as the most important things to to uh, being a good head coach weren't that I was a play caller. And that's not going to hinge on that. And yet, it's really hard for him to get real consideration for head coaching jobs. You know, even though he's very well respected at what he does. And I was like... How do you crack that bubble, right? I mean, that's a hard thing, and I think that would be a, that could be a hard thing whether you're white or or black. But to me, it's like, where are those conversations? Like, how do they they go from there? Because if I'm having them with them, I'm curious. Like, are the decision makers who are ads, you know, like this kind of thing? Because then also, you know, a lot of these guys have agents, but the agents are going to be more wired towards the top of their food chain kind of thing. And it's a, it's kind of a weird cycle to, to get, to get kind of sucked into. Yeah, it is. And it just shows you just how murky it is to navigate getting there. And there's no direct route or answer. And that's where I think it's important. One that this, the stories are being told about guys like Jawan Sider, about guys like Markel Blackwell, who also was a quarterback that has coached quarterbacks and been in a receiver room and has coordinated. 
um, that there's there's so many of these guys out there, and that's where advocacy groups like the coalition that, that I've created, we have to do a, a great job of making sure we tell these stories. Um, you know, how do we get them in front of these decision makers? Again, I think the more Bruce Feldman and the more, you know, guys like uh, Kirk Herbstreet and all these guys that have the, the, the microphone and the volume of listeners that you guys have that talk about the, the great jobs these guys have done um, as assistants or in the roles that they've been given, you know, now it becomes cool, you know, for the a fan base to say, yeah, let's hire this guy because, you know, it's the, the campaign and the narrative behind it is all positive in terms of all the things that this guy maybe has accomplished in the role that he's in. And to me, that's the part of the promotion that we've got to continue to do. And, you know, when you look at how and why guys are being um, hired, as I said, I don't even see them as being hired anymore because when you put the resumes of a, some of the guys that were hired in this cycle, whether it's the NFL or the college, against some of the resumes of the minority coaches that we vetted that we think are capable, um, the resumes stack up uh, sometimes more favorably with the guys that we've, we've brought to the table, but they may not have the, the name recognition. They may not have the, the influence of the fan base and the, the powers that be, which they listen to, to make it a little easier to maybe justify the decision. And that's mm -hmm. where I think it's more of an election than it is a hiring. And we've got to do a, a great job as a, a, a advocacy group for minority coaches to, to make it cool to, to hire Eric Bieniemy and, and, and the fans understand it, the sponsors and all the powers that be uh, get behind these hires. Uh, I wanted to to wrap as we get into your your team. And obviously 2020 was a crazy year for everybody. Um, you have a young quarterback who everybody knows his last name because a lot of people remember, you know, you were around Tua Tagovailoa, now Leah, his younger brother. And I throw this from a different side. One's left, one's right-handed. But a lot of arm talent. And what we saw from him last year, shaky first game at Indiana, then he lights up Penn State. And I think that was a road game and then looks really good in the, I don't know if it was a double overtime game. I remember watching, a, you know, you guys play Minnesota. Looks really good in that game. And then struggles the last time, I think, and it was at Northwestern, and they had a really good defense. What do you see from him and his development? What gets you excited about where where you feel like this program could be? And um, you know, from his from his perspective, what did you what did you learn about him last year? Yeah, I think the big thing when you look at Leah, like you said, the Northwestern game, um, first game of the year. You know, it wasn't just Leah's struggle, but we struggled offensively, defensively, and as a team against the team that as the season played out, everyone found that to be a, a really strong, um, formidable opponent, especially in the Big Ten. Um, and then he came back the next couple of games against Minnesota, like you said, Penn State. And I think you were, you were able to see just a scratch of the surface of the type of talent and skill set that he has. I mean, you got to, again, remember, this is a guy that's, that was his First start was against Northwestern. He hadn't started a collegiate game, even though he played some the year before at Bama before he transferred in. Um, he's still very young in terms of the experience and the toolbox 
uh, development to, to be a successful quarterback. But when you watch, you know, his work in, in, in some of these games, you see that he has the ability, skill set, and, and decision making to be one of the best quarterbacks, in, in, in my opinion, in the country. And so what we've got to do now is get the consistency in his play which tends to come with experience. And the one disappointing thing for, for, for me from what how last season transpired is obviously he missed, you know, the last game of the year, Rutgers. He missed, you know, due to, due to a medical reason. And, you know, the Indiana game, which he struggled where we threw, you know, three interceptions. Again, after watching the tape, I put that on me and us as coaches that we didn't necessarily put him in the best possible position to have success. And so I think the best is ahead for Talia in that, you know, as we continue to put the right pieces around them, which I feel we've been able to do through recruiting, as we build up our defense and, you know, we've you know, got a new D coordinator, but we're running, you know, the structure of who we are on defense not changing. You know, Brian Stewart's coming in. He can add to the package. And I, and I think, you know, we'll, you'll continue to see as we get – more mature and more experienced from all these young players we played the last couple of years. You know, to me, this is the year that I think we take another uh, big step and hopefully we can get the, the pandemic under control where we don't miss games and we can continue to develop our roster, develop these young players. And as we all know, it starts with having a quarterback and somebody that can win under center. And we feel like we have that entirely. From his skill set, you bring in Danny Nose, who you worked with, and obviously he knows the family. He was an integral part of that development when he was in Tuscaloosa. How do you see the fit there, and what do you expect from from your young quarterback to respond to it? Yeah, what an what a easy transition. You know, Dan being very familiar with the system we run, uh, he and I work very seamlessly together. You know, obviously with my background and working with quarterbacks and Dan's background and developing quarterbacks uh, and then being in a system that he, he kind of knows the intricacies because he went through it and saw, you know, from a sequencing standpoint, how the, how how to call this, this system and how it complements each other. I think what you'll see because of Dan's experience is you'll see a lot of the gray area taken out of Talia's decision making. Um, Dan's one of those guys that eliminates the gray, kind of the, the Einstein approach. He takes the complex and makes it simple. And I think the more you do that for the quarterback position, the faster he plays, the quicker the decisions are made to where you can throw the accurate balls that we know Lee is capable of doing. So, you know, I'm excited to see, you know, how with the addition of the new coaches that we've been able to bring in and, and then with the development as well as the experience of just playing for two years with a lot of these young players. And we took a, a step last year from year one to year two. I thought we progressed. Uh, but obviously the expectation for me is in year three with some of the experience we have and the way we've been able to build the talent around the quarterback position that we take a big step this year. Uh, and it starts with us having to be a little more disciplined in how we go about playing the game of football. If we can just eliminate the – self-inflicted wounds on offense and defense, I think you'll see the Terps take the next step that we all want to see us take. Just the last thing, you had the loaded receiver room in Tuscaloosa. Obviously, we've seen all those guys grow up, mm-hmm. um, even now in a Heisman. Um, you have a five-star guy who you brought in, who you beat who beat everybody in the SEC to get. Um, similar to what the skill set and the talent of what you had in Tuscaloosa? 
Yeah, as, as I've learned, comparisons are the kiss of death, but I can tell you that I am uh, uniquely qualified to see some similarities. And I can tell you, at least from where we sit, uh, the receiver room we have here is the most talented room on our team right now. And um, we've made strides last year with the young offensive line where we shored up some of the protection stuff. I think with Leah's continued development um, at the quarterback position, um, you'll see us take advantage of that, that receiver room that has some big play guys. You know, Jay Sean Jones was a freshman that made a lot of plays for, for Maryland here when they played Texas and he missed most of his second year and came back last year from the ACL. Dante Demas is a guy that, you know, a lot of people thought may have had opportunity this year to turn pro, considered it. Um, the addition of Rakim Jarrett, Brian Cobbs, you know, uh, we got some young receivers and the Day-Day McDougal, who we, we think has a chance to be really special as well. And, you know, the addition of a guy like Ty Felton, we feel really good about the receiver room. Won't even start to compare to the, the room I had there in Tuscaloosa, but I can tell you it is the strongest room in our program. And, you know, our quarterback, you know, we got to get him developed and bring him along to take advantage of uh, that room this year. Yeah, I remember we our crew did Jones's first game at Texas. It was a rain delay. He was, I think he had three touchdowns. He was, was like, wow, where did this guy come from? And then obviously it's been injuries and it's been uh a big it'll be exciting to see if he can uh stay healthy and get it all together with the with the talent around him now well coach we appreciate your time i know this is uh we kept you a lot longer than i'm than i asked you for and but it was i feel like there's two really really important subjects that you're on the forefront um in and that don't get enough uh that uh, you know we don't talk enough about and especially on the the first issue as one that I feel like is something we're only scratching the surface on. So um, appreciate you being really, um, really upfront and so vocal about it. And thanks for, thanks for joining us on the audible today. Well, thanks for having me and allowing me to, to tell the story. I think, as I said before, with the mental health piece, uh, stories help eliminate the stigma that goes along with it. And for you guys to give us a platform to, to talk about it, uh, we appreciate it. All right. Thanks coach. Take care. Thank you. We really appreciate uh, Coach Loxley joining us today on the Audible to really delve into some some issues that are really important and, as we said, even bigger than football in a lot of respects. Um, it was interesting to hear both his personal stories and his perspective on some of those subjects. Uh, Stu will be back on the Audible next week. We will kick around his coaching hires grades for this past cycle. Stu and I had an interesting discussion offline about that, so we will bring it to the Audible, as well as answer more of your questions. As always, send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.